0: I listened to your uh, your conversation with um Tom Janot and I know you guys were talking about Mike Tyson
1: mm-hmm. and
0: kind kind of his white you know you would show up you didn't you didn't want to see grace you didn't want to see you wanted to see how quickly he was going to knock somebody out right like you didn't feel um short changed if you saw a fight that lasted less than a round you feel like you got your money's worth because you saw a vintage Mike Tyson fight like you saw the ferocity of what happens in the ring with him and then you speculate how long you might last in a fight with, you know what I mean? Like you and your buddies would freak out about that. Ronda Rousey was kind of that version for MMA.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is MMA writer Chuck Mindenhall. He's written for such places as The Athletic, The Ringer, LA Weekly, and we get right into the UFC being in the imagination of a Boston-based boxer size instructor by the name of Dana White in the 1990s to its selling in 2016 to WME for over $4 billion. Uh, Dana White's ascension as somebody who spoke at Trump's Republican convention In 2016, Trump regularly shows up at uh, UFC fights, or his family does. The branding of the UFC definitely seems heavily tethered, politically, to to a conservative fan base, to a white conservative fan base, in a way that uh, other sports definitely have been very ambivalent to wear politics on their sleeves. I was as interested in sort of pulling away from the actual fights to just look at the, the kind of ethos of the sport. It obviously had an interesting intersection with boxing when Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather fought. I think that was the second biggest pay per view event in history, which is also intriguing because there has been so little transparency in fighter pay, a very controversial issue with the MMA, even more than in in boxing where as my friend Kurt Emhoff said you're either rich or you need a second job it's it's even more so with the MMA Uh, where the biggest star that the sport has produced is the owner with Dana White so yeah Chuck Chuck was that expert that I really wanted to have on to to look at how this sport ascended as fast as it did and was a $4 billion sale overvaluing its potential? Did they buy MySpace or is it on its way to bigger and brighter things? So Chuck Chuck was a great um, expert just to elucidate a lot of that stuff for me. So I hope you enjoy Chuck Mindenhall. I was just gonna say what has this quarantine situation been like for you where are you how are you living what the hell's going on
0: well it's been uh, it's been interesting man because uh i'm about 50 55 miles from new york city so not too bad but i was uh, up until early march i had been going into the city to uh, record uh a morning combat show with for the showtime guys so i was i was still going into the city up until kind of the last minutes i guess of it and then uh the shutdown is just... Honestly, man, I, I, you know what I realize about myself is I don't really need to be out too much. That's what I've kind of realized through this process. I've uh, Most of my work is done from home anyway. Um, it's kind of nice not to have to travel to events a little bit. Um, if I'm trying to find silver linings, you know what I mean? Because I was going to a lot of UFC events and things like that. So it's been kind of like this... Uh, at least for the month of April, let's put it this way. The month of April was kind of like this... Uh, restoration period for me i felt like man like kind of just getting it back together focusing again things like that i've been trying to use it that way um and so far you know it's it's not been too bad i haven't been too affected I, I have two kids and they've been very good through this whole thing so um yeah it's been it's been going as well as it possibly can honestly
1: yeah it's it's bizarre isn't it i mean i keep trying to wrap my head around i guess the first thing is the rent situation in New York city and and across the country, but for for journalism, like with no films, no concerts, no sports, how long does this go on? Like, I don't really have any clear sense of the horizon at this point.
0: Yeah. I think that that sense of uh, not knowing, right. Is kind of what looms over all this. I, I feel like you kind of get up each day and you go through your business and, you you try to keep it as normal as possible. Like for us, I'm at The Athletic. I just kind of, you know, it's kind of business as usual. Uh, I don't know how much you follow the UFC, man, because I know sometimes you've mentioned it and talked about it. Yeah. But they are trying to push through. Obviously, they keep trying to push through and hold events. They've got one scheduled for next week. Um, and it looks like they're going to go through with it. So you try to kind of focus on basically doing what you have been doing. But I got to say, man. You see, you know, you keep reading the news, you see the figures, you see the layoffs, the furloughs, you see the, uh, you know, the journalism in general has a hard time, man. It has a hard time. Then you get a pandemic involved in this. And I feel like that's an opportunity, you know, to kind of uh, to yeah. prove and, and make more sense of it. It just feels like we're watching the world change in real time. And I'm not sure a lot of it's going to go back to where we had it, you know, uh, where where things felt normal and all that stuff. And. I think that sense of not knowing where it's all headed, man, is uh, it's the hardest thing to juggle, just that kind of abstract feeling of what the future holds here. But trying to maintain, man, you know what I mean? I, I think it really does break down to a principle of saying, like, I'm going to try to do this day at, one day at a time. Like, we say that type of stuff, but we actually have to kind of, like, try it now, you know, like, just focus on the day ahead of you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Cause, uh, tomorrow is going to be five years since boxing had its... Biggest fight, I mean, by some metrics, not in terms of quality, that's for sure. <laughs> but I remember, I remember covering that fight and just thinking, if this is as bad as every indication says it is, except for the sales, this is as much emblematic of how I feel about being in this country right now and where things really are. Yeah, and, I, and I'm kind of amazed that boxing still has the power to do that. And yet I felt like the tone of the piece after... And, you know, Mickey and I... Mickey Dujay and I worked our asses off to do a 22,000-word deadline <laughs> piece with, like, 30 pieces of art. But I remember just thinking, God, it's so fucking negative. It's just so dark and negative and Vegas feels dark and all these high rollers are here. Uh, but I... I feel like now, five years later with what's going on, as you say, what was normal before like, is going to seem like a utopia now that we were living under. And that is a weird thing to wrap your head around, how irrevocable much of this massive change could, could look like, I think. It's not going to be cosmetic. I mean, it's a massive overhaul.
0: It really is, man. And it's funny you say utopia. Like, I was thinking about this. You know, if you if you flashed back to 2000, in the year 2000, um, the UFC, the particular sport I cover, MMA, was still in a very dark place. I feel like most people considered it, um, you know, just basically a taboo. I don't think anybody really thought it was going anywhere. I don't think there were too many people who thought it was going to blow up into anything that it's become. But if you were to say in 2020 that in 20 years – Cage fighting, barefoot cage fighting, was going to be on ESPN and kind of running, basically the sole sport running on ESPN at some point in 2020. I would think of the dystopian future. <laughs> I'd be like, "Oh my god, right, we right. reached into this. Uh, we've reached into some kind of um, you know Mad Max sense of what's going on. It's so bizarre to me, man. Uh, and I and I got to be honest, I haven't been able to wrap my head around this whole thing. Um, just the lunacy of." All of it, you know what I mean? Like just covering this, covering the sport in this moment, and plus wrapping your mind around all of the bigger, like you're mentioning, changes that are going on. I will say though, man, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. There is a pervasive negativity. Uh, which fight were you talking about there, though? Oh, Pacquiao Mayweather. Okay, good. I, I just wanted to make sure that that's what we were talking about. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. it's funny because uh, you know. I know, I know. I think I've seen you kind of commenting on the, uh, you know, the Mayweather-McGregor uh, fight, right? And I was out yep. there for that. And it's, you know, it's just a BS situation, uh, money grab type of situation. But the negativity surrounding the fight game, and I think just kind of in general, and I don't know if it's a social media um, influence or maybe it's a combination of things. It's certainly felt at live events like that nowadays, man. I just, I, I feel like the romance. Probably the reason you get into writing about the fight game, and probably the reason you get into um, you know journalism or any kind of law form reading, all of that type of stuff, was based on some kind of connective you know um, psychic thing going on between writer and reader. And I I feel like that place is very difficult to pinpoint at the, at this point in time, man. It's very very different times.
1: Well, I and I I also think like I want to get into this in a deep way with you because because you, you're right. I mean, this is is the uh, definition of tourism for me is I've written a couple things about your sport and I've never gone to an event I've bought one event which was you know Connor McGregor I was sent his alcohol by the <laughs> PR people sent it over to Bloomberg and I don't drink you know yeah. I have a glass of wine every now and again so I, I required people who do drink to try his alcohol <laughs> and that's no the way to people- go Yeah, yeah, no, they were quite happy to show up for a free event and a bunch of alcohol. But I I really find it fascinating, and I want to go back from here, but that the MMA now, like you were saying, 2,000 looking ahead. Another thing I don't know that you could have forecast is that it is the most politically aligned sport that exists in America right now. I mean, I think that's fair to say. I mean, Trump's kids... Are regularly there. Trump himself was there. I was blocked off when I was trying to bicycle down Manhattan because the motorcade was passing through to get to an event at Madison Square Garden, and that's an interesting feature f- for me about the UFC and Dana White speaking at the Republican convention. Like it, it wears politics on its sleeve. The fighters, Dana White. Um, I think a lot of the marketing in ways that. I I can't think of any sport that comes close no. in a terrible way.
0: No, I think that's absolutely correct. And honestly, man, since two thousand and sixteen, um, and you know, uh, you know, Trump, Trump and Dana White have been pals. You know, going back a ways, uh, Trump was actually involved in the fight game with the Affliction promotion. I think in the kind of late aughts, you know, like he was. Yeah. Uh, an investor, or, you know, something. I remember seeing him at those events. So he we knew he was an MMA guy, but also an entrepreneur, like he was a businessman. He's trying to like uh, kind of jump in on the boom. But I knew that him and Dana had been, you know, kind of friends through this whole thing. I just think that, you know, as the alignment has happened and if things have played out in real time, the surreality of 2016 till now, it's made for a very, very strange, divisive, polarizing effect in this uh, in the in the demographic. Plus um, like I said, the UFC has gone, uh, you know, there's been a lot of changes. Um, a few years ago, the UFC sold for $4.2 billion, which, be, you know, made it into a whole different type of situation, uh, part of the, uh, Endeavor group now. So it's like more entertainment based and things started to kind of change, but the alignment with Trump has been a very strange, uh, it's been a very strange thing and it's very difficult, man, because... In some ways, it's great, right? Like, you, you're in a sport where there's so much wide-reaching, um, just like any part of the fight game. I know you love, you're love. you a boxing guy, man, but it's like what boxing was doing back in the day. There are political um, extensions to everything. There are, you know, you get down to ethics when you think about this. There are racial things. There are gender things that go on in the sport. and And then you have this added political, like, charged atmosphere. It's just a... It's a very, very strange time, and I think it requires honestly people to kind of get out of their comfort zones if you're going to be a writer in in the fight game these days to actually kind of tackle the very thing you're talking about, man, and try to uh, to make sense of it for other people because it kind of lives in a very, very divisive space right now. Um, and it's it's just it's part of the interesting times, but it's also very, uh, like, I would, I'll be happy when it's kind of over, when the Trump thing is kind of over and the Dana White thing is no longer, a, yeah, no longer yeah. a thing, you know?
1: Well, as you say, I mean, it seems very much baked into the fabric, which, I mean, isn't to say, I mean, Trump was in boxing before he was showing up at MMA. He was yeah. all over boxing, trying to promote his hotels and casinos, and after that, he was with Vince McMahon, a very outspoken Republican. His wife is um, an elected official. But I can't think of another sport. I mean, I do think nationalism is a big thing in boxing, obviously. Puerto Rican, yeah. Mexican rivalries, go go to a fight with a Polish fighter. Huge fan base comes in in Chicago and that kind of thing. Um, th- those are obviously, I think, something healthy in a way in that 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 it doesn't seem to lead to riots very often. It seems <laughs> to just lead to excitement and... Pride, and I quite enjoy having three or four national anthems played and seeing people proud to see a representative. I mean, this is the whole idea of I think where sports comes from is instead of us killing each other, we compete. Right. And I I'm a fan of that theory. I think we do have these this bloodlust that we can take out in a way that's a little more constructive and entertaining as opposed to massacring one another. Um, but I want to go back with you to when. Well, first of all, your own evolution toward writing and also toward the MMA, because, like, the origin story of the MMA is so fantastic. I mean, not that boxing isn't where you've got... I mean, I mean fantastic in the sense of just fascinating with sure. slaves hooded in battle royales fighting for change that's thrown at them. I mean, it's as dark and disturbing as, as any origin story with sports, but the MMAs is... I mean, it feels like a couple of guys were watching Bloodsport and said, "We should, we should do this." <laughs> That's exactly what it was.
0: <laughs> That's exactly where it was born out of. Bo- it was, it came out of an imagination, right? Because I think that in the '80s, uh, in the '70s, man, you got you know Bruce Lee movies, things like that. But as you know, Bloodsport, especially a movie like that, that just kind of played up this idea of an underground fight club, right? Where these guys are bringing these different things. And actually, I went back and watched that film recently, and. Um, you kind of see that they, they are a blend of styles, right? Like there's a guy who's a Muay Thai specialist type. There's another guy who's like bounced around like a monkey. You know, I don't know the yeah, last yeah. time you watched it. There's all these. So they're kind of indicating there's all these different types and approaches to the fight game. So literally, it was born of something like that. The imagination of what would really happen if you threw in, you know, <laughs> these types of people into a cage with no weight classes and no anything. It's just which, which style prevails. And that is literally how it was born.
1: <laughs> it's such an interesting controlled experiment because i whenever i i love professional wrestling when i was a little kid i the modern version of it where it's like wink wink we admitted sport sports entertainment less interesting to me than when the most forbidden aspect is the most obvious which is that it's fake but we'll keep it from you right it seems to have a lot of like i think it's the way i internalized organized religion in a lot of ways where it's like Holding up scrutiny to any of this, it seems insane, but it's really fun to believe in it anyway. Yes. I, I mean, think
0: I, that's a really interesting psychological way to think of it. I think that that's, uh, that's, that's the right way to be, right?
1: Well, I, I mean, I just mean, and I, I mean this res- respectfully, the friends I had that regularly went to church were not leading their lives as if they were going to burn in hell if they didn't follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I thought, if you really believed in it, I mean, you're going every week. What are you doing? Like, shouldn't you be petrified of some of the things you're doing? Um, whereas the moments where I remember holding up some, some semblance of scrutiny, my like six-year-old self, watching Hulk Hogan take on 15 people and thinking, yeah. there's no way this is real, but what if it is? Right. And just being so thrilled, like one of the defining moments that this weird controlled experiment about who would become the most popular figure in wrestling, that Hogan's narrative just resonated with the generation more than professional athletes, more than people doing real things. Make-A-Wish Foundation, number one celebrity to to see before you're dying if you're a child. Not a real person doing real things. Hulk Hogan. Right. So, I mean, with MMA, I I agree with you. I mean, this is a sport that originally... I don't think anybody was really believing that this would become a mainstream 7 p.m. ESPN programming where your kids and, and it's family viewing safe safe family viewing on on a regular channel from where it began but like how did Dana White a former personal trainer steer this into something where it's so commercially viable he isn't laughed out of the out of the country for saying it's going to be bigger than the NFL his words i'm not right. i'm not editorializing he is quoted as saying it could be bigger than the NFL and to underwrite that statement which seems absurd at face value sells the fucking thing for for 4.2 <laughs> billion dollars yeah
0: it doesn't make a lot of sense man but i i, I have So I got into the sport a little after Zufa's purchase. I mean, where you're really watching it. Uh, Zufa's purchase, I think, was in 2002. And that's when Dana White and the Fertitta brothers purchased the uh, UFC from its darkest moment, where it was not being regulated, wasn't being sanctioned. I think most states, it was still illegal. Um, But there were a few, and this is where Trump early on came through for Dana White, because those first couple of UFCs under Dana White's um, guidance happened in Atlantic City, uh, at, you know, with Trump at at his hotel. So it was kind of where they started, but I, I think that he really did take a page from the Vince McMahon playbook, right? Like and understood a little bit of that fact versus fiction, um, that fine line between playing those two up a little bit. Um, but really it came down, I mean, honestly, it's just the the guy just, he's, he's kind of masterful in a, in a very, thought-out way. Like, he, he knew that they had to get into every state, and it, the process was really just going to be about education, and it was going to be something about, like, proving over the course of time. Now, you, you being a boxing guy, I'm sure you've heard this, that they always talk about, well, it's safer than boxing, right? Like, we don't have the, um, you know, the eight count and all that stuff. We, if there's a flash knockdown, the fight is over. If the referee deems that he's not in, uh, intelligently defending himself, t- things like that. There was this long process of Going from state to state, um, they took Mark Ratner, who was uh, the, the Nevada State Athletic Commission, like head at the time. They brought him in to work at the UFC and basically educate all these, uh, you know, judges, regulators, all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And they just kept that process right. And I feel like th- because they did that, it's it's it started to form like this kind of core of legitimacy. Even if you looked at it and it was a spectacle, and like BJ Penn shows up licking the blood off his gloves, and um, you know Chuck Liddell is you know, Mohawk looking hun out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like these guys, they, they, they looked crazy and all this, but underneath it all, they were, they were going through this major process of just trying to um, legitimize it. And they've used that the whole, the whole way, all the way through. And each thing they do, that term legitimacy is always the term that like diehards cling to. And so, you know, it gets a little weird as you get into the ESPN era and all that stuff. Cause now it's like, there's the backlash of like sellout and, all that stuff, people changed their mind. But legitimacy was the whole thing. And I thought that Dana White handled that um, very thoughtfully. Like he brought in the right people and they just did it the right way. And it helped that they had like a few stars along the way, especially once Connor and uh, Ronda Rousey and those types showed up. But um, it's just been step by step, man. It's been very strange to watch it succeed against basically all odds through this whole process.
1: Oh, and it's, I mean, I think he he did a stellar job. I mean, it's staggering its profile, the way it was raised, with the amount of opposition that they faced and skepticism, political opposition. I mean, obviously, famously, John McCain, human yes. cockfighting and that kind of thing. But I remember just, I mean, initially when it was coming out, because, I mean, I was a teenager just beginning with boxing and like amateur boxing. And to see guys come into a boxing gym at that time and be like, yeah, you're pretty good with hand pads, but do you want to try jiu-jitsu? And I was like, you mean like Bruce Lee shit? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you want to try that stuff? And very quickly, uh, this was very instructive for me, was sparring with these guys and just fucking annihilating them. And the moment they say, try my thing, and recognizing that if we had a street fight, I would be killed in six seconds, right. I was like, well... I can see psychologically how this would appeal to a lot of fans to be like the real fighting is this. Yes. This is, you know, this is something that's a lot more complex than what boxing is and and it doesn't necessarily like I was talking to to somebody about the benefits or I guess like a comparative analysis of how somebody like Ronda Rousey can become the face of an entire sport, transcend the sport, maybe transcend all sports with what she, where she was for, for a, a little while, a couple of years, it seemed like. Um, in a sport where there was rampant misogyny from the top down, uh, a huge push to never allow women to fight, according to Dana White, didn't want women to participate. Um, with the amount of money she was making, that she was the face of the sport, and you compare it with somebody who also has an Olympic pedigree, much more olympically accomplished than Rousey and Clarissa Shields in boxing, right. um, who just, despite trying to put on a show and sell her fights with trash talking, and that kind of thing, there is no equivalent to Rousey or many of the elite female fighters in the MMA where women fighters, I think just the, their anatomy does not allow them to be very heavy knockout punchers, quote-unquote exciting in the sense of most of their fights are not being stopped as a result of the damage that they're inflicting, plus they've got two rounds, sorry, two-minute rounds working against them. Um, And this is always a little delicate to talk about because I don't mean it in a misogynistic way at all. I I just find that if you can add kicking to the equation and more threats to the fighting style, it does appeal in a way that like if you're comparing the WNBA to the NBA a casual fan lowest common denominator of what's exciting is watching dunks and you're yes. not seeing many dunks in the WNBA and i think knockouts is a fair equivalent with with fighting for a lot of fans they don't they aren't screaming with joy when you get a a decision at the end of a fight which is a grueling battle of attrition so i just i just wonder the Rousey effect in the MMA, like how does something like that happen? I guess in in female tennis, you have some stars that I think have been bigger than men. I know that the, the pay scale is, is still pretty unfair in, in that domain, but what Rousey achieved just seems totally unprecedented in in yeah. all sports. So so walk me through that walk me through that journey that she had to become what she did and how quickly it
0: disappeared. Yeah. You know, honestly, man, I believe it was a perfect storm, like you're mentioning. I, I really believe, and Dana White, obviously, is one of the, you know, he's one of the, you'd have to point to him first because he's such a um, a ringleader in that sense. You know, he's the guy who, whatever he puts out, there's going to be, 50% of the fans are going to echo it like it's their own thought. But when he's basically saying, like, there there will be no... ...female fighters in the UFC ever, right? Like, he's basically making that proclamation, even as Force, which is the rival league at the time, has some, you know, some commodities coming up, basically Ronda Rousey being one of them, but there were a few. Cyborg uh, was part of that, and uh, Misha Tate, there were a few kind of biggish names uh, that were kind of breaking through in big ways in MMA. I think part of it was the psychological hurdle first, and the kind of conquest of Dana White. Like once he got on board, right, and like gave entrance at UFC 157 for Ronda Rousey, and and she became kind of like the Trojan horse for women's MMA. It became a big deal, like so people paid attention. I was at ESPN at the time. I remember ESPN paid attention. It was like uh, you know, it felt like the, the 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 larger world was paying attention to what was going on suddenly. But here's the thing, and I know I, I, was, I listened to your uh, your conversation with um, Tom Janot, and I know you guys were talking about Mike Tyson
1: mm-hmm. and
0: kind, kind of his white, you know, you would show up, you, would didn't, you didn't want to see Grace, you didn't want to see You wanted to see how quickly he was going to knock somebody out, right? Like, you didn't feel um, shortchanged if you saw a fight that lasted less than a round. You feel like you got your money's worth because you saw a vintage Mike Tyson fight. Like, you saw the ferocity of what happens in the ring with him. And then you speculate how long you might last in a fight with, you know what I mean? Like, you and your buddies would freak out about that. Ronda Rousey was kind of that version for MMA, for women's, like, women's, and it it was way bigger than just um, fighting at some point. But, like, the fact that she could destroy you in seconds, these were people who were pretty good fighters, you know? Like, she's taken out, um, you know, Kat Zangano, for instance, who was really good at the time. She was taking her out in 13 seconds, you know? She had a con- she had a combined fights. This was early on in the UFC when she broke through, where she finished everybody within 30 seconds. It was like she. I, I think if you added up three fights in a row, it only came to like a minute. Mm-hmm. But, but this is the type of thing, right? Like that suddenly you have a Mike Tyson version that we we've never seen in a woman who's just that badass, right? And I felt like everybody jumped onto that. She became, in, in terms of like the bubble of MMA, she became like the Hoist Gracie. What he was to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like we were talking about, like at uh, that original UFC, she became the Hoist Gracie that basically, uh, for all women, and I, even to this day, you talk to any female fighter in, in mi- mixed martial arts, I feel, well, unless they kind of preceded her in the timeline, for you know, there's a few of them still lingering, but most of them say, like, they, they basically got in the sport because Ronda Rousey, or they acknowledge that, you know, they wouldn't be where they are, they wouldn't be getting the money they are, all that stuff, if it weren't for Ronda Rousey. I just think she was that phenom but i think it was literally kind of in that mike tyson vein right like you were, we weren't tuning in to see like you mentioned with clarissa shields you you know you knew she was going to annihilate whoever they threw it was like the stakes sliding under the door and i think that uh i think that that really sold and the fact that she could be that form and also show up on a red carpet the next night you know what i mean like dolled up and all that stuff it just she she could be all she could kind of be anything you wanted her to be and i think that's how she did it um, it's kind of played out very differently since her, since uh, she's been out of the UFC and some some things have changed. But where she was in the sport at that moment was I, I don't even think the UFC sells for you know four billion dollars if she doesn't have that that moment. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I mean I think I remember the effect being something similar to you know number of actresses in Hollywood, if not all of them, legitimately criticize Hollywood for not creating good. Interesting roles for women, that, that, that the roles are supportive and, and cliche, but every now and again, you get sort of Sigourney Weaver playing Ellen Ripley in Alien, or you get Jody Fisher sorry Jodie Foster's role in Silence of the Lambs. It's so unexpected that it becomes transcendently surprising. Yes. about like this new way of looking at somebody in a genre which could be more cliche. And Rousey had that, that it was just sort of like imagine Mike Tyson as a as this beautiful, blonde, yeah. terrifying, nightmarish scowl on her face coming in, just annihilating everything in front of her. And it was just so arresting. I mean, uh, it became this must-watch thing. Um I think even for casual fans of sports uh, not just mma fans or casual mma fans um but i also i also wonder the mma compared to boxing um seems to have had some issues where in terms of producing sustainable longevity with its stars like rousey was gone as fast as she arrived tyson was there for 20 years
0: yes of course yeah
1: Um, Mayweather was there for a 20 year career. Ali was there for a 20 year career. Most of the big names, it took a while for them to catch on. Mayweather was not popular for the first half of his career. You only need to like, look at, look at the Arturo Gatti Mayweather fight that put him over. Nobody was paying tickets to watch Mayweather for that fight. Right. Very few people. Um, and it seems like the MMA, because the structure is so different, like I I, I wish I want you to speak to a uh, Mayweather can handle himself in terms of the opponent picking once he becomes the A-side in a way that it seems no UFC fighters have the agency to do. They are forced to take tough fights yes. when they're most difficult and most dramatic, which from a consumer standpoint is fantastic in the short term but long term for the longevity of these fighters and being able to pad their career or make more money and that sort of thing um, it doesn't seem terribly advantageous for these fighters to um, because i just think it's a much more dangerous sport to a, to protecting a record than than boxing because boxing is just a much more limited sport uh, not not to argue which is better in any respect but if I'm worrying about getting kicked or submitted, it's there's just so many more things to worry about. It seems sure. like those variables lead to a lot more instability and chaos and unpredictability in the results that generally, in in my opinion, the UFC produces more excitement on a fight by fight basis. Most of boxing seems like sort of classic Cowboys and Indians fights. You know, right. The winner almost always beats the underdog. So I wonder how you see the UFC and Dana White trying to deal with the fact that, like, right after that sale, for example, it seemed to go from its best year ever in terms of pay-per-view buys to yes. suddenly everybody is walking walking away or beaten out of the sport. And it's not really clear where the next big stars are coming from and you're getting not just walking away from the sport, but you're getting pinched with all kinds of PED tests for a lot of the major names, Anderson Silva, John Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. George St. Pierre is leaving the sport after coming back. He only sells 900,000 pay-per-view buys. So it seems a bit like where Dana White is projecting in a sort of Trumpian way that it's going to be the biggest thing ever. (laughs) The data doesn't seem to support... The data seems a lot more modest in terms of where it's headed, or a lot more uncertain. So I wonder, can you speak to that in, in the MMA with the structure of fighters being forced to fight the best fights at the best time, which I think is, is a huge reason why it's overtaken boxing in popularity, is just most of the great fights in boxing are not happening when people want to see them between the people they want to see.
0: Yeah, that's a very astute um, thing you're talking about, because honestly, that is... What, that is the big differentiator, right? Is that the UFC has always kind of prided itself on being giving the fans the fights they want to see. That's actually a Dana White uh, maxim. Like he'll just he'll say that all the time, um, and I think that that has been basically the mentality. Uh, I can remember having a conversation with the matchmaker Sean Shelby at one point. Uh, you know, basically about. this was right at the heart of Ronda Rousey's uh, when she did when she was the champion and seemed invincible. Right. Like and they were kind of just throwing her opponents and she's taking them out. I can remember him saying, like, you know, my job is to find the person who's going to beat her. And thinking like that is very different than a boxing model. Right. (laughs) Like you're. Like, yeah. he's, he's basically saying, like, I want to find the person uh, who's going to go in there and beat her. And I thought, and I remember we argued about this, and there were multiple other people in the room. You have this argument of kind of like, why would you want to do that? Isn't this what exactly what you want? You want this person who's basically bringing eyes to the UFC, like her pay-per-views are blowing up. It feels like the most compelling fighter you've ever had. But it's like the mentality was, you know, you, you beat them. You add doubt to the scenario. This is what they're selling, is... You're adding the doubt. Like boxing was always like, well, this guy, he's, he's you know, he's a ten to one underdog. He probably he has no chance. You know that sort of situation. And these ones, it was almost like they're they're always trying. Even with Ronda Rousey when she seemed that far ahead of the field, they were still looking for the person where doubt could be cast on the situation. And I feel like that's kind of the secret of the success during the Fertitta run was just to. You know, if if uh, George St. Pierre is fighting, who can you who can you get in there like, well, he didn't want to face Johnny Hendricks. But Johnny because Johnny Hendricks is a great wrestler who can neutralize a lot of um, St. Pierre's strength. So they wanted that fight. You know what I'm saying? They wanted to, to let the imagination try to figure it out. And they let that kind of be. It's it's a lure. And I, I feel like that is the best part of it. But it has backfired plenty of times, man. Um, they shoot themselves in the foot with this exact same scenario, there are multiple times where a champion, uh, somebody breaks through and becomes a champion who does, you know, if you're looking at it straight from a business standpoint is maybe going to do a quarter of the business that the person they beat was, you know what I mean? Like, or, or it throws something into chaos that didn't need to be in chaos. It goes a little overboard. Um, why they do that. I, you know, I think that the UFC, that's their business model It's to kind of you know, they're not real concerned about uh, getting 20 years out of a person. I think they want to have stars that will have a shelf life, you know, of five good years, you know, if they can do that and they can kind of put them through all the the things and then, and then have the baton pass to the next guy, that's what they want. And uh, that, I mean, there's never, it's never been expressly said, but I, I, you just have to look at its history under Zufa. And then now the current UFC to see it, um, there's no there's no such thing as protecting its stars it's a star building business where they just it, they make them vulnerable at every at every turn that's what kind of separates it i think but it's a it's a, it's a unique man i'm sure from an outsider i know you don't watch a ton of this but from an outsider i'm sure it looks very strange if it's strange optics if you're used to the boxing model
1: well and you're hearing about these antitrust laws and it does seem oh, yeah. very much run as a as a monopoly with a czar who can just dictate, you know, putting bounties on exciting fights. And again, from a consumer perspective, it's, it's fantastic. And I mean, I, I, I always, I mean, my first impression of seeing sports in Cuba was this is a conservative white man's utopia of sports because it, players have no agency whatsoever. Your team stays together forever and nobody has any say about anything. You know, it's just, it's just the best sports possible, sort of thing. But, but I mean, it also seems pretty apparent that beating, beating the man or beating the woman, nobody who beat Ronda Rousey the last two times became Ronda Rousey or anywhere close to it. True. And that's,
0: that's I, a, that is a, that is a, that is something that I think they might have <laughs> overestimated. I think that Holly, they thought Holly Holm would blow up. If she got by Ronda Rousey, it just wasn't the case,
1: right? Yeah, it was sort of almost like a a Evander Holyfield beating Tyson. It's still Evander Holyfield, like it's still, you know, that's a great achievement. But I don't really care who you're. I don't really care about you unless you're fighting somebody good again. And Rousey, it seemed very much in a Tyson-esque way, which is very difficult. I mean, even Floyd Mayweather couldn't do this. You just you just wanted to see Ronda Rousey fight next. You and and when is that? It's not who is she fighting. Right. Very, very few fighters ever achieve that degree of marketability where we're just asking when are they fighting next, not who.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think that. Part of that is this very this willingness, like you mentioned with rel- like the religion. <laughs> um, it, there's this willingness to believe in her invincibility and to let hyperbole like just basically control everything. I, I you know, there were there was somebody I, I think it was Clay Travis who said that Ronda Rousey has to fight Floyd Mayweather. He wrote an article about this, and I, you're seeing things like this and it's just it's absurd right like it's absurd but there's something about the drunk public at this moment especially like with guys like mike tyson how drunk everybody gets together on this and so that you let it go as far as it'll go you let it get as absurd as it will and you bank on this idea of her own invincibility as long as that is the tension right behind it all i feel like they could they have something you have this huge star it's uh, that's living up to this ridiculous standard, and um, it's just, it's it's a bizarre uh, it's a bizarre setup, man. But she was able to pull it off for a lot longer than I think people thought she would.
1: And and I mean, I I always feel weird because I've gone to a, I've been invited to a few sort of private pressers for Clarissa Shields, and the moment she steps up to to talk about the narrative of her career and who she's fighting and everything. It's nothing but basically telling us all the fuck off that we we have that all of the media has been oppressing her, achieving her deserved marketability. And I'm always struck by this because I contacted her her people to to go to Colorado to cover her and stuff. And, you know, she does have a great story. But the other problem is, is that her story has been told everywhere, and it's been told everywhere at, at the most prominent places that it can be told. She has her Netflix documentary, and the bottom line is, is, in terms of it motivating people to spend money to watch her fighting, it does almost nothing. She has no marketability, and, and the personality is not winning. I understand the intrinsic misogyny and racism, sure. and... And maybe with Ronda Rousey, it really helps that that when you when it's announced that you're doing like the body issue and ESPN magazine stuff, it sells a lot of copies. People want to see her physically. Um, she's on the cover of a lot of magazines. She fits the more stereotypical um, ideal of sort of a model-looking-looking looking female, and her race helps and all of that. But I wonder. I wonder for for the MMA in general, what is the next star that's going to have that kind of impact that Rousey did? Because I don't even know that. I mean, Conor McGregor certainly. Yeah. Seemed a- yeah, like the biggest that I think it's ever produced. I mean, do you think he's bigger than Anderson Silva was? I mean, it seems like it.
0: He's. I think he has. I think he's the biggest star. I think Ronda Rousey would be the only one who kind of compares to Conor McGregor. They're the only two completely transcendent stars uh, that we've had in MMA. So I believe these things are perfect storms, man. And, with the, you know, they like to throw around this it factor. And it certainly matters, right? Because people like um, it's like, the you know, the, the I, I know you mentioned this before, too. The, was it Max Kellerman, the Four Corners thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you were talking about this, too, uh, in that in that interview, but basically the four corners, if there's a basketball game, there's a baseball game, there's somebody, uh, you know, slam dunk, whatever, and then there's a fight. Which way are you looking? You're looking at the fight. The UFC really plays, you know what I mean? It, it loves to throw that idea out there. But... It helps if somebody is steering it so that it's basically uh, making you want to watch the fight. And I feel like there are certain people in this industry who have that, whether it's through like, their fighting style or how they get it done, if they're just these devastating knockout artists or whatever it is. But there's, it's, all, it's, it's a layered thing. I, I think some people have a more of a compelling force behind them where you just want to tune in uh, just given who they are. It, it matters to you vicariously almost to, to kind of see how it plays out like you feel personally invested, those people translate very well in MMA, but there aren't that many of them, man. Um, They have tried so hard to manufacture stars, like calling people stars, Uh, you know, these guys who come up, and it feels forced in the beginning, and maybe there is a, a moment where they kind of gain some stardom, but it's more of like a a calendar moment where it's like, okay, well they're fighting on the state. you kind of forget about them the next day. There are a lot of those. They kind of, so it's, they really are just part of the bubble. And I feel like the UFC has had a very difficult time identifying new stars, but the people you were talking about, Ronda Rousey was the perfect storm because like you mentioned, she's this blonde bombshell type who um, comes in and destroys people with her judo. She also had an Olympic background, right? So she's throwing people around, arm barring them in like 15 seconds. And, um, She's a great soundbite. She's the she's kind of given like I I ain't no do do nothing bitch. You know, remember this whole thing? Like she was, and you and she's got like Beyonce uh, shouting her out and all this stuff. I mean, it it took on a culture of its own based around this like invincibility, and so she had that it factor on in ways that we'd never seen in the sport. Conor McGregor was kind of like the caricaturized version of the Irishman that you always wanted. Like you wanted to see Mm -hmm. this guy who was like this fighting Irishman who. Um, was sharp as a whip. Understood. Was uh, you know, almost um, jubilantly materialistic, right? Like he's like he's gonna go buy the suits with the pinstripes to say fuck you and all this. I mean, people loved every. It's like he, anything he does was magnetism. It was like it drew people in. But again, a perfect storm because he was Irish and you know the the Irish are showing up in droves for Vegas fights and all that stuff. It just was something else. And again, he was kind of transcendent in the way he was knocking people out and things like that. It's very difficult. Trust me, man. I'm watching the sport, and you're like, "Who is that next star? Who's the guy?" And they, they have a couple of people. There's a guy named Israel Adesanya right now, uh, who's in New Zealand, and uh, he was, was African-born, and he's been transcendent inside the you know inside the octagon, like he's winning his fights. He's already the champion. Uh, it was like meteoric rise type thing. But and he has a very kind of um, fight game attitude. But I gotta say, man. Like, you just don't feel like he has the it factor in the way the UFC is framing it. It just feels forced. I don't really believe, you know what I mean? Like, you, you have to see, you have to really see it, um, it to, to know it. And I don't feel like the UFC has that kind of person on its roster right now. They don't have that person right now.
1: Do you think the fact that it still seems like Dana White is the most famous star that the UFC has produced on oh. some level?
0: Yes. And, 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 I mean, he was the perfect guy, right? Like, the perfect guy to deal with all of this because he's stubborn. Like, even with this pandemic, you know, just pushing through. They tried to have an event right in the heart of it on April uh, 18th, I think it was, until it was basically shut down politically. And, like, the, the heads of ESPN and Disney kind of intervened they were going to go through with this event um but now they've now, now they've got one coming up in Florida they've you know they they basically have they used to run towards regulation now they're almost running away from regulation again you know to to figure this out and keep the outlaw kind of thing rolling but they Ugh. you know he's he's stubborn enough he's brilliant enough but he's also man i feel like that you know you almost have to be kind of like a sociopath right like you got to be a little bit like that to to deal with everything and to like not can, not really get involved with the feelings of it, you know, like to just um, to push forward through it. So he's been the perfect guy through this whole process, and I think that fans trust him as a successful. It's almost very it is very Trumpian in this way, but it's like as a successful person, like he just gets things done. The MMA fan, the typical fan. Finds warmth or whatever you want to say, comfort, security in Dana White. They just know he's going to do it. So um, he's been the perfect guy. I don't know if he'll be the perfect guy to carry it forward another, you know, twenty years. But he has been the perfect guy to this point.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right, and I I think the way he's managed, I mean, it's a tricky thing, right, to to remain the underdog and to remain this sort of rebellious figure. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get at a couple things. Like with Dana White, I think the way that he's used the rivalry with boxing, and I think the way that some of the elder statesmen of boxing spoke out against the UFC, my feeling is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that as the UFC was gaining prominence, you had a number of people in boxing, Bob Arum, Floyd Mayweather, a number of people always going after it in a homophobic way. They were always undermining it, saying, you know, men on the ground fighting each other. This isn't real fighting. Um, Aram, I think, you know, really embarrassing homophobic bullshit about about the UFC. And almost all that I heard from UFC people, you know, and I think Joe Rogan most prominently, was huge level of respect and admiration for boxers and boxing. I don't think there was any respect shown for the way boxing was run and that seemed to really get a lot of attention. Just saying that you have these dinosaurs running it, it's it's go to a show and I mean I feel this way going to a boxing match that begins at 5 p.m. and is going to end at 2 a.m. Yeah. And really I know how every fight is going to end because of the way it's structured. <laughs> yeah. And and the delays between it, you know the fact that our 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 highest profile fights are showing up at one o'clock in the morning is when they start <laughs> it's It's not a good look for most people, especially me, who's like I'm a morning person up at four in the morning. I don't want to stay up at fucking one a m at night to watch these shows or that that kind of thing. yeah, UFC I remember even early on, Tyson going to events and just saying, Look at how they're organizing this, how quickly you're getting fight after fight after fight. Like it's really well run. And I never have that feeling when I go to boxing events. I always feel like you motherfuckers, like are, you get me (laughs) here because I want to see whoever's fighting in the main event, but almost everything else, I really can't stand you and I can't stand that there's a paywall from the biggest events so that a broader audience doesn't get to enjoy the best of your product. And I understand the pay-per-view model with operates also with, with the UFC, but it just seems like it was organized in a much slicker, adaptive, um, yeah. like it was just curated a lot better than boxing. Boxing still does feel very stale. And even though I understand there's there's some issue about the demographics where Dana White would always say, oh, the audience for boxing is old. Well, I mean, when I wrote about it for Bloomberg, it turned out the average audience for the MMA was 49. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's crazy. So what he was saying and what the data supported were were quite at odds, but I wonder how how do you look at, let's say, Joe Rogan's role where he seems to have a bigger audience with his podcast as a result of largely I think like his announcing MMA and to some degree a lot more recently being being a stand-up comedian who who I quite enjoy but how does somebody like that garner I think eight million Twitter followers and such a gigantic audience on his podcast and a lot of it seems similar to me to the kind of ethos of the MMA where they're just sort of like you may look down on us you may Diss us, you may discourage us, but fundamentally, we're a lot more fun at how we do this than these yeah. other organizations that are much more sort of professional. And we have this rebellious figure in Dana White steering us who doesn't sound like a suit. He doesn't sound like a corporate type.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I just wonder, like, look, what is, let's just go into Joe Rogan a little bit, because I find his elevation, I mean, there's been whole articles just trying to examine. Why more people are tuning in to him to look at political discourse with major political figures than any media organization? Like, what, what, just give me Joe Rogan for you. Like, what, what's your take on him? It's been
0: the strangest thing to watch. Because honestly, man, when, when I first started watching the UFC, he was already there. He was already in place doing the color commentary. And what, so what was that show where they kind of eat bugs and all that? What was that show? Fear factor. Yes. Well, see, he was – that was the only reason I even knew who he was at the time. Like, he was like – and and I think he kind of – you know, so he was a famous, semi-famous guy, but he was a complete dork when it came to martial arts. He loved it, and he was uh, immediately unapologetic about it. This was a key factor, I really believe, because you had this guy who's – you know, he grew – basically through the UFC, but also his stand-up. And now, like you mentioned, his podcast is ridiculous. And there's this whole network of comedians that are basically part of this. uh, You know, the Theo Vons, these guys who, like, uh, kind of are all part of this uh, Joe Rogan, you know, atmosphere. And and they all love mixed martial arts. And so it's like it becomes like this whole secondary thing and even Brendan Schaub, who's a UFC uh, fighter, a former UFC fighter, like is part of that group. And uh, Joey Diaz, all these guys. So it, it becomes like this nucleus on this other side, these comedians. But the, but they all of them are so reverent of the sport that it kind of like it, it changes a lot of people's mind. I think the people looked at it like kind of like this cult cool or um, something like that at some point. But the big thing was obviously the jujitsu, right? Because uh, I think that Joe Rogan has always been a jujitsu guy. And if you're looking at the sport, like you were mentioning you, uh, at the top of what you're talk- saying, it's a weird optical. if you haven't watched M- MMA and you tune in and there's two guys lying, supplying on the ground, one, one, you know, one, one guy and a guard, meaning he's got his legs wrapped around the other guy. They're both barefoot and they're stalling maybe because the guy's got his head in, buried in the chest and he's trying to kind of like advance and make a move, but they're kind of frozen. That's a weird thing to see the first time, right? It's Arum, just Arum. kind of weird to see, and you're yeah. like, "What is going on here?" And that's a lot of where um, the criticism from Aram and those types, it, it, where it came from. But this is where Joe Rogan was instrumental. He was guiding you. like you mentioned curating a fight, like or curating a show. Like he was curating the fight. He was telling you exactly what's going on in those types of exchanges and basically being the bridge for understanding what jujitsu or the ground game is. It was, I think if you don't have a Joe Rogan, basically doing that and kind of giving you the enthusiasm, uh, his enthusiasm and his kind of expertise on it, I'm not sure that MMA would have ever gotten over. It's just one of those things like he, he pointed it out, he educated you and it it became its own jujitsu became its own thing. Um, that worked obviously in a fight but you kind of had to understand it. it was like they always called it like you know kinetic chess those types of things. You have to figure out uh how to defend submissions, all that sort of thing so I think that he was instrumental in kind of leading this movement of jujitsu, and it has it has been a huge blessing for the UFC man to have him as their guy this whole way and his cult of personality the thing that has it's just been phenomenal honestly man it's like i, I i'm personally find it somewhat inexplicable that he has reached the levels he has in the political realm like you're mentioning and just you know all the emphasis on being a dude you know like that sort of thing about like uh everything all conspiracies everything else man like he, it's crazy to me that he has ascended to that level but he is very 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 instrumental in mma getting to where it is
1: well and i mean it, it's interesting because I, I don't know if you were like this but there's some people that i've become friends with that immediately when i saw them I just felt an immense degree of antipathy. I just didn't like the look of them or yeah. listening to them talk or something. And then with those people, sometimes you turn and you're like, I'm just dead wrong. I'm just dead wrong. And you like them far more than somebody that you immediately liked. And and Rogan was very much that for me, where I just... I didn't particularly like the look of him. I hate. I've never watched Fear Factor, but I hate the idea of Fear Factor. I hate that being popular. Um, I knew that he'd been an actor. Yeah, it's just awful. I mean, yeah, and and then little by little, like getting exposed to him as an announcer. I think watching highlights. You know, I my gateway drug into to appreciating the MMA was that you had Anderson Silva, who's one of the most incredible combat fighters I've ever seen in my life. Like the thing he's doing, it's, I respond to him in a very similar way to watching Michael Jordan. It's just, how is he doing that? It's like a real Bruce Lee movie. A lot of the moves he's doing, they're mind boggling. But along the way, you're getting, as you say, Rogan being so, not just analytical in in such like a a helpful way for for the unacquainted but his enthusiasm—it's yes. really fun to be in his company in a way that I think boxing had Jim Lampley, who was just a very odd character, right. but yeah. but was you know on the verge of tears at any moment at the mere mention of Muhammad Ali or or nine hundred other figures in boxing, right. and. We needed somebody a little unhinged in that way who was so sentimental that they want to break down crying every time they talk about half-naked men walking into I, the ring. Like, it was fun. It was just yes. fun. It was like Crazy Uncle. Sets
0: the, it, it, Rogan sets the tone for fandom. He still does. To this day, like, whatever his perception is becomes the common perception of what happened in the fight. Um, I would have loved to have read, like, an A.J. Liebling-type piece <laughs> about MMA today, like, how it works— I would love to see what old the old you know the uh, the 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 chroniclers of old boxing and the, those really great figures would have thought of this sport because uh, you know I, I'm sure you've read all that that type of stuff but it's just sure. uh, it would be fascinating to just get their their version of what's going on at this point but he sets the tone and I, I think that it's funny with guys like Jim Lampley he's very poetic right like he's a very poetic and emotionally connected figure to like you mentioned a lot of the boxers. But he's so articulate. I feel like Joe Rogan's a little bit the opposite. He can be articulate, but he's also just, he loses himself. It's almost like, you know, and I know he loves to to get high and all this stuff, but it's like, sure. uh, I think he loses himself in his commentary to the point where you get on his vibe. You know what I mean? Like, you ride yeah, his yeah. vibe. You ride his, uh, his perception of what's going on. And people have really, really liked it. There are a few that hate it at some point, but it's, it, I mean, it, it's kind of the... Exp- it's the experience. MMA, the part of the experience is Joe Rogan. The UFC experience is Joe Rogan.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right, and I mean, for me, for for me, what turned me into somebody that is curious about Joe Joe Rogan's reaction to things was not being exposed to the podcast and finding him through such disparate people that he had on to have on Bernie Sanders or right wing nuts or documentarians like Louis Theroux or neurologists or neuroscientists is that he would have such unquenchable, ferocious curiosity about subjects have on the absolute top people to discuss these issues and allow them a platform to talk about it in a civilized way for two or three hours. Well, there's nowhere else to get it. And it's (laughs) not as though Rogan is saying he's an expert on any of these subjects. He's saying he's a student of them. He wants to learn And because he has this tremendous audience, these people will come on and talk about it. I just thought, well, it's the fact that he's so relatable and humble about his aspirations that is so unlike all of media where I know exactly where almost every profile is going after reading two sentences or listening to two sentences on television. And I'm always being told that on a 24-hour network that we've just run out of time. Sorry, we only had five minutes. Um, it's amazing to me that Joe Rogan fills the hole for people that have an attention span for three hours to listen to people of all kinds of points of view and allows his listeners to not listen if they don't want to listen to it. You know, like, like, can we just be a little bit grown up that, uh, you know, I've listened to a number of the people he's had on that I profoundly object to as people, but I, but I'm really glad to have a couple hours to really see what they're about and similarly, he's had people on where I see the Twitter responses, this person should never be allowed to speak for two or three hours. And I listen to them and I think that objection tells me a lot more about Twitter and those kind of strident signaling Twitter people than it does about a person who you know, I mean, like kind of like Jordan Peterson is a prime example where I don't particularly like a lot of his ideas. But I mean, if a Canadian professor from the University of Toronto is unlistenable for three hours in a civilized conversation with Joe Rogan, where are we? Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't I seem see that true. big a deal. His eyes get
0: wide at like the, uh, you know, the process of discovery. I think that he, I think that somehow he kind of hitches the wagon. I mean, his whole fan base on the idea of an epiphany possibly happening. You know what I mean? Like he, I think he wants mm. to know, he wants that moment of clarity. He wants the epiphany, uh, somewhere along the way. And I, 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 I agree with you 100%. It's like the difference between being a listener, right? A very good listener and the person who wants to give you the version of like a storyteller. He's a listener first. And um, because it. he's that, it, it works. It works. And he does that in uh, – he does it in his commentary too, man. Like it's like he's trying to discover um, something through the process. And I feel like that psychological approach to it has been very, very um, – it's been very good to him, but it's. I think his fan base really relates to that, like you said.
1: You know, you made a key thing. That's that's it. That's why I respect him. And that is that he is a listener first. That's exactly it. Like Jim Lampley is a talker. Jim Lampley is known for the great statements he said, and he's he's great at it. Jim Lampley is a complete professional to be informed about everything that he's doing and, and maintain a standard. What I love about Rogan is that he's a listener, and he's a proud amateur at everything he's doing in an industry where everybody is waiting for their their turn to talk and to use subjects as much as they can <laughs> for their own ambitions. Um, it is an interesting element of Rogan that he does seem to have all the enthusiasm of an amateur. And it seems like there's also an interesting parallel that, like Max Kellerman in boxing, was kind of the, the whiz kid who knew everything about all the old-timers. But he, <laughs> he also gets a lot of criticism in that he's not really a listener at all. He's always trying to show you how much he knows about everything, and he does know a lot. He's incredibly knowledgeable. But it's, it's a lot more pleasant. I'm, I'm, always, uh, I'm always impacted when I listen to Rogan's podcast by the pauses that are there they're really long and they're really unexpectedly long, um, not interrupting people, uh, and interrupting their flow is, is like, I'm just aware of how rarely I'm encountering this with not just guests, but a lot of guests that I don't think he agrees with in any way. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stunned that there isn't more of it. Like just, just in the general discourse of the culture, like why it's coming from him still kind of blows me away.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, man. I I don't feel like other people, um, <laughs> for whatever reason, are are as uh, as genuine as are, are genuine at getting those types of moments. You're right, man. It's so varied. I, I I can remember he's there've been a couple of times where he's spoke his version of the truth. He, he dresses somebody down essentially on his show and. uh I know he did that to Brendan Shaw, who he became very good buddies with afterwards, but uh, it's it's unique that he just, I, I think he's got it in him to kind of be a lot of different things. Uh, but like we mentioned, I think he want, he's curious. I think it starts with his curiosity, but if he sees something, he's certainly not afraid to tell you. Um, and I think that that also kind of just aids his whole thing. But man, it's, I'm telling you right now, I, if there's no Joe Rogan, I don't know that the UFC is where it's at. I it, this is this has to be one of those things where you look at Dana and what he's been able to do, you look at Joe Rogan what he's been able to do and the types of audiences that they've captivated and kept and held for this amount of time. Um and then you look at obviously the stars that have happened through. I would put Joe Rogan right up there though with one of the most instrumental guys uh to make MMA what it is. It's just it's it's been very very um Just, it's been amazing to watch, man. If I'm being honest, like it's been amazing to see something like that play out.
1: Hmm. Well, and so going forward, I I mean, the biggest, I want to get your take on Mayweather McGregor and Uh McGregor making as much money as he did, provided like with boxing and MMA intersecting in this sort of sideshow environment, the gigantic pay per view success that it was. But it also seemed to illuminate that. The biggest star in MMA is making, what, 10 times what he was making in, yeah. with a boxing component? Granted, it's a Mayweather thing, so it's not just boxing. Right. But, but that has been a constant thing that has dragged the MMA, is that these fighters are not making the kind of money they should be, and it seems very zero-sum with the top people at the, in the UFC versus the people that are risking their lives and... The blood, sweat, and tears of their careers and much shorter careers than boxing typically produces. So can yeah. can we speak to that a little bit, those two issues?
0: McGregor has been very so you we mentioned early on the model, like the model between boxing, the model between MMA, just how it's how the whole thing is run. The one exception, and I think that this has caused endless you know, in fighting and kind of like small mutinies within MMA is the treatment that Conor McGregor has been a- been given by the UFC and then also just what he's been able to accomplish by being bold enough to go and do it. And he's he's shown uh, fighters kind of how to do it that had no idea. Like there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to the boxing model in MMA that I think opened their eyes to basically what was going on with Conor McGregor It is a uh, it's a to this day you know you ask like who's the most overrated MMA guy to um, you know to a to a fighter there you're it's fifty percent chance they're going to say Conor McGregor they don't feel like he deserves where you know all the kind of accolades he's got but I think that he has opened the eyes to the business aspect it's kind of been to the detriment of the UFC if they were, if if the UFC is trying to keep everybody kind of um, even keel and without complaint and just going through, you know, doing their fights and getting the contracts that uh, the UFC, that benefits the UFC and all that stuff. McGregor has kind of changed a lot of that perception. Um, I don't know how much of it's detectable um, for people outside the MMA, you know, atmosphere to see, but it's a lot more unrest um, now that McGregor has been in there. But in terms of the fight, were you asking about the fight itself with uh, with uh, Mayweather?
1: Yeah, well, just just that the the profile of it, and yeah. I mean, just its nature seemed, apart yeah. from the sort of sweet generis thing, but uh, really embarrassing to watch. I mean, yes. from my perspective, I don't know what sure. it was like for you, but just speak to as you're covering the sport, and you get the you know the most profitable athlete in history. With Mayweather, weird to say, but it is yeah. it is a fact. Um, I don't particularly enjoy that that's a fact, but it's a fact. Um, comes into to a contest with Conor McGregor that has a slight amateur bo- background in boxing. And I remember like going on ESPN radio shows and stuff, and they'd be like, Well, doesn't he have a puncher's chance and all this? And I was like, <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, but like a, a T ball player getting pitched to by Nolan Ryan in his prime, do you think a home run is going to happen? Right. Do you really think that that's going to happen? Like, do you understand how good Mayweather is at this very strict yeah. discipline that Conor McGregor has almost no training in? You think in three months that's going to happen? Like, it was just bizarre. Like, um,
0: it, was, it was perfect. Okay, so the end result was obviously very embarrassing. I I, I was at the fight um, and I was around all the hoopla and the buildup. And, I mean, they had a whole tent of media. It was almost like the Super Bowl. There was, like, press, you know, press rows type thing where there's just, you know, Stephen A. Smith and uh, Michael Rappaport. There's all these people. I was jumping on with all kinds of people, man. It was, it was crazy. And talking about this thing is, like, uh, in its legitimacy, which was very, very odd. But from the MMA perspective, it was very interesting, man, because I think there's an inferiority complex with MMA – chroniclers first of all because boxing's chroniclers you know you go back for 100 years and there's been some of the best going but there's also just uh you know i think that because of boxing's history it's figures everything that's happened mma doesn't have that that's something they can't compete on and i think there's basically a reverence to it um what i thought was fascinating man honestly going into that fight was just the baked-in kind of cynicism of the boxing world, you know? (laughs) Like, the the, the BS detectors were just going off. I I felt like most of the boxing world was like this, you know. They they were pointing it out for what it is, as a fiasco almost, a money grab, all that type of thing, and just wanted no part of—want to know part of—not everybody, but a lot of that, right? Like, there was this cynicism that was pervasive— Whereas with the MMA crowd, it was like this wild eyed adventure, right? Like it felt like, oh, you know, there was such a thing at the moment as Mystic Mac. People were calling McGregor these these things and think, I, I mean, literally, in the way that we were talking about Ronda Rousey kind of, uh, you know, having this air of invincibility that people kind of drunkly followed and wanted to take as, as absurd as they could take it, McGregor had this Mystic Mac thing that he basically could affect the cosmos, essentially. Like he could, uh, You know, he could call his shot. He would he would do these things. He did it against Jose Aldo where he called his shot um, and or he'd called around and he was able to do it. There was just these things that was almost prophecy. And it it sounds silly to even talk about now, but that he was that that existed going into this fight. So I think there was this feeling in the MMA world. And I these are people that I respect, like there are a lot of them that are very smart thinkers, very critical thinkers, very analytical thinkers, all that stuff. That were giving him a chance, man. So it was like <laughs> it was the strangest thing. Nobody's going to admit to it anymore, but trust me, I was there and I heard a lot of people, <laughs> you know, going on about how um, you know McGregor might have a chance in this thing. And I had watched enough Mayweather to know the difference, right? So I'm yeah. always predicting Mayweather. You know, uh, just like you're doing, man. Like you, 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 you watch boxing, you know what's going to happen. It's just you know what's going to happen. But the air of that thing was just so ridiculous man and i thought i thought it was like it was like it was like it was like this example of just how dumb we could be if we if we try you know if we try we can be as dumb as as anything and believe anything and that atmosphere i don't know if you watched any of the uh you know the kind of like little global tour that they did. They went around. Oh, yeah, I went
1: to it. I went to okay. it in New York City. It was awful.
0: Yeah, the Brooklyn one was the worst, right? Because oh. McGregor shows up in his like pimp gear and he's just uh, oh. you know, he's making bad jokes, sexist, like racist crap. I mean, it's just it was everything about it was so gratuitous and over the top, and it felt oily and just. I, I was like the whole thing. I was just like, this is not. This is the fight game at its worst. That's so. That was my thought yeah. through that whole process. And the fight was, I know, you know, you could, uh, the best you could say was it was, it was a fun concept in the way that, um, you know, maybe, you know, Lyle Alzado fighting all, you know, Ali was like, or something like that, where they're just doing an exhibition type thing, where it was had an air of adventure. But beyond that, man, it was, uh, I, I just want to forget, I want to forget about it. You know, it was like that type of uh, experience for me.
1: Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was. Utterly predictable because boxing is be- you know better sure. than uh, MMA because I think if you flipped it and Mayweather became a tourist in into the MMA, I think McGregor would have annihilated him in fifteen seconds.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, James Tony is a good example of oh. that. It was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen. Was that? Yes. Uh, who was it again? Couture. Yeah, Couture. I believe.
0: Yeah, Yeah. those types of those situations. I mean, I, you know, I keep reading, you know, Dana White. I don't know. Like he he had talked about Mayweather. He keeps talking about Mayweather because he's a businessman and they like to be associated with uh, Mayweather basically coming over to MMA. And that's just anybody who has an imagination for that at this point. I'm like, I, it's sad. It's sad, right? Because Mayweather is a great boxer, man, but he's not going to be able to defend the, the takedown and once he's on the ground what's he going to do it's just it makes no sense
1: so where do you see where do you see it going i mean the ufc where is it headed after this fucking thing not that we have any clue where <laughs> anything is going to be after it but where do you see dana white trying to take it and as as for you i mean i also wanted to get at what are some of your in your opinion the best pieces that have ever been written about U- the UFC or UFC profiles of fighters, um, where do you look at as sort of the pantheon of the best stuff?
0: Man, that's a great question. Well, first, the first part of your question, man. In terms of UFC, they're going to forge ahead. The, the, what they have to—I mean, they have a May 9th, May thirteenth, and May sixteenth, like three shows all happening in Jacksonville. You know, obviously, no attend, uh, no crowd, none of that stuff. So they're going to forge ahead. They gotta hope that nothing backfires on them through this whole process. Um, It seems very ill-advised for them to be pushing ahead the way they are, but they're they're going through with it. I don't know where it's all headed though, man. Because once Dana White cashed in during the sale, uh, because he was a part owner, right? Like he got a percentage. I think it was something close to four hundred million dollars. I thought his passion would wane Mm -hmm. a little bit, obviously, because you've won, right? Like you've won the game. Like you got in the sport, you're rich, uh, you've got everything you wanted out of it. But he's still there, man. It's like his passion is still there, and he's still, you know, no, no road is too low for him to take, right? Like he's he'll he'll he's as petty as he's always been, all of that stuff. So I don't know. I feel like he's just going to he's going to stick around because I think at this point his life he identifies with uh, just being a part of the UFC and and being the face of the UFC. So. I don't anticipate him going away, and I, I kind of just see it rolling along based on where it's at. Um, but in terms of, like, the best writing, that's a great question, man. I It's funny because I, I know you're a writer, man. I love, you, uh, like, your stuff is always very good. There are certain writers that I see, if I, especially if I see you writing about MMA, obviously I'm going to read it. Um, I feel like a lot of the, the best stuff has been kind of the writers who don't normally cover the sport but have, like, you know, uh, a curiosity about it or they dip their toe in it or, you know, kind of visit it. I remember Wright-Thompson doing a piece on uh, Conor McGregor, like his double mm. pass. Yep. Which, it's a good piece, right? Like, any time Wright-Thompson or something like, somebody like that jumps in, you know, you're going to read it. And um, there's good there's good pieces. I'm trying to think, though, in terms of within this sport, um, what there is. I mean, <laughs> it's certainly not the... It's not like boxing where you can just point out uh you know piece after piece or book after book there there's just not a lot of that. I try to actually the reason I'm in the sport at all is because uh I felt like there was a need honestly cool. for a writer in the sport like a person who actually is a writer first you know chronicle, not a journalist, but a writer, like a person who's trying to actually um see the nuance and the absurdity and the levity and everything going on. And to kind of point that out. So I try to pride myself on being that, that guy in the sport. Um, and there, there are a couple of others. Ben folks stuff is always very good um, in the sport and stuff like that. But I think honestly, man, if I'm being completely honest, a lot of it is when writers in general, the writers who are the really good sports writers actually come and look at it. I find those pieces fascinating because you're catching an outsider's point of view, but a very thoughtful point of view or a very a very specific story within our sport. I, I always look for those. I look for the national like kind of those big writers that come in and uh, and write something specific about the sport.
1: and i like to I like to think that outsiders, I mean, obviously, I want people knowledgeable about stuff talking about stuff. <laughs> like I, sure. I, I am for expertise, but I remember something, and I, I found it like a useful counterpoint to, I think, where journalism is headed, where, you know, uh, some of the older journalists that I've spoken to on this podcast say, there's just too much I in journalism. And I'm like, well, there has to be a lot of I if you're only really allowed to write about your own perspective. Yes. And you don't have money to really spend time with people and gain a lot of other perspectives. Like, it's not just people choosing it. It's sort of like that, uh, millennials being dismissed as not emotionally growing up and meeting adult markers, well, they're not moving out because they have a lot more debt than their parents did. Like, it's a lot more of an economic decision than it's an emotional decision sort of thing. And, and, you know, like, I remember I remember listening to the commentary on Hoop Dreams with the two kids who were now, I think, in their 40s. And they made the point to say that if somebody from our neighborhood wrote this story, or sorry, like filmed our story, they would never have included the like us not having money to pay for electricity right. in, in our tenement, because that would be normal for them. Whereas two white guys coming in who are middle class people, academics, like like big academic background, they've never seen anything like this before. Right. It's totally shocking. And... We were a little uncomfortable with it, but looking back, it's a very important document of how we lived that maybe people from our perspective would not have told. So I do like to think – I like also when people come into boxing with no background in it. A lot of people love Joyce Carroll Oates on boxing. Yeah. I don't particularly like a lot of it, but yeah. I want more of that because I think outsiders are always the one to point out things that the rest of – The rest of us within a parochial domain don't notice a lot of the time. It takes an outsider to notice things sometimes. I
0: I agree with that 100%. And uh, it's funny that you mentioned Joyce Carol Oates because uh, she wrote wrote a book about Tyson, right? I think I read that one. I I read the book for sure, but the Tyson book, um, I I enjoyed kind of seeing her perspective. You know what I mean? For that very reason, like you like to see that type of thing. And I actually at one point asked her... um, if she would attend a, an MMA event, because I really wanted to know what she would say. Like, Ooh. I wanted to know what she would basically have to say about MMA. Um, and I wanted to do a piece, basically, that was like, you know, attending an MMA event with Joyce Carolos. She actually got back to me, like, herself, you know, and, like, uh, sent me a very nice note and said, nah, I'm not interested, that type of thing. But <laughs> I'm I'm 100% behind what you're saying. I think that it it matters to get that outsider perspective, because let's face it you do take certain things for granted within the bubble and all that stuff and sometimes there are major things going on that whatever reason are just blind spots in your coverage i mean and i i think that um somebody coming in and pointing it out and kind of making it more broader you know what i mean like for for a more access and more entry you know for people who don't know the sport i'm interested in that you know what i mean you want to see how all of that uh plays out so I'm all about that man. Anytime I see that a, a known writer or somebody that I really appreciate from other, you know, previous work coming in the sport, I'm I'm always down to read that piece.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think, you know, she's an incredible writer and incredibly articulate. What I what I disagreed with in some of her writing and and also, I mean, I was drawn to it because she really focused on the Mike Tyson phenomenon. Yeah. Is is I just thought her coming in and saying we're cheering on Mike Tyson because we know if he wasn't doing this in a ring, he'd be outside doing this. I thought, well, that's kind of a a leap. and And I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, Mike Tyson obviously did do a lot of things outside of the ring that were violent, but she seemed to suggest that all boxers were acting out suppressed aggression and rage and would otherwise be criminals, except in this one sanctioned domain. And I (laughs) just thought, well, like, what the fuck do you know about it?
0: Right. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, like, I, like, what what, <laughs> like,
1: like, like would every clinical psychologist of serial killers would like they're opting to be obsessed with serial killers as opposed to serial killers who don't have a choice and are compulsive, but right. we don't, we don't say like, this is a really sinister thing to pursue obsessively if you're doing it in the, from a clinical distance. Right.
0: Yes. It's funny, man, because you mentioned that stuff and I, I haven't read that book in a long time, but, um, I have to say, I have, I have always got a, like, I like the wild hairs, you know what I mean? That's the people sure. use and they go through these. Like, I like when people have these extreme perspectives a lot of times because it makes you think about things totally. and all that. But I agree. I agree with 100%. I mean, obviously, like, in a literal, in a literal reading of something like that, I'm like, uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little a field. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this was, uh, this was really fun, Chuck. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was fun to uh, finally have a chance to chat. Yeah, man. It's always
0: fun to, I, I'm a big fan of your work, man. So it was like, uh, I, I'm sorry it took us so long to actually connect, but uh, definitely stimulating, man. It was a lot of fun and I love getting your perspective on this sport, man.
1: Likewise. Thanks so much again. I appreciate it. You got it, man. Thanks, brother. Take care. Yep. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Sweby. Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.